Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is food writer, chef, and YouTube presenter Claire Saffitz, whose new cookbook is What's for Dessert? She's joined in conversation by Eleanor Park, SEO editor for New York Times Cooking. And now join Stephanie Singer at the JCCSF as she introduces Claire Saffitz and Eleanor Park. I'm not sure that there's another chef whose cookbooks inspire the kind of sheer excitement that Claire's do. A recipe developer, New York Times cooking contributor and video host, and New York Times bestselling author, we all know and love Claire because her recipes work. They're delicious. She tells us why we're doing what we're doing and where we can take shortcuts and where we really can. Claire's latest cookbook, What's for Dessert, picks up where dessert person left off. It's beautifully written and incredibly thoughtful, and uh, no matter your skill level or time allowance, the sheer breadth of recipes in this book means there is an ideal dessert here for you. Claire's joined tonight by Eleanor Park, the SEO editor for New York Times Cooking. Please join me in giving a warm JCCSF welcome to Claire Saffitz and Eleanor Park. Hi, Claire. Hi, Eleanor. <laughs> Welcome to San Francisco. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we were just talking backstage because I know that you literally just got off the plane. Yes. And um, you were about to tell me about your go-to airplane snack. And then I, you said that there's a whole thing, a whole routine, <laughs> and I had to interrupt you because I was like, this knowledge needs to be shared with the world. No, don't get excited because what I was about to tell you but didn't get a chance to say is that like I have no system. It's chaos every time. Okay. This morning, so I flew in from JFK. Oh, God, what a flight. It's brutal. So I was at, like, I got there at, you know, it takes all day when you're coming from the East Coast. So I got there at like... 8 o'clock in the morning, I had a 10.15 flight. I always get there early because I'm like anxious, an anxious traveler. And all I wanted was, like, I've never wanted a cup of coffee more than I wanted a cup of coffee this morning. And I could not find a single place in the Delta Terminal that was open for a cup of coffee. And I just walked on the moving sidewalks back and forth for like 45 minutes, being like, are they open yet? I was, it was, I was devastated. I was texting my husband being like, I, this is horrible. Like, this is a miserable experience. So this is surprising coming from... A, like, you know, a renowned baker, pastry chef, you would think that not all chaos lets loose when you get to the airport. Like, I imagined a spreadsheet, like a timeline, oh, you know, a prep time, a bake time, total time, right. a, <laughs> a recipe for my an airport matrix, maybe. <laughs> I think I've gotten less organized and like less sort of regimented as time has gone on. I'm, I have done several in-person events where I've traveled. And so, and this is sort of toward the end of my scheduled events. So I was just kind of like, I'm just going to show up at the airport and see what happens. I hope I packed the right things. It was, it was just a little bit hope of a mad dash. The right city. I, I made it to the right city. I was seriously worried, you know, a couple of times. But I didn't tell you the reason. I have to go right back because I'm doing a wedding cake this weekend in right. Texas. 
So I'm so stressed out about this wedding cake project. <laughs> very lucky if you get to have Claire Savitz make your wedding cake. It's for a very good friend. Yes. And I'm very excited to do it. But you know the memes where it's like someone kind of squinting and then it's like a square root sign and like someone really, and like that is me. numbers matrix. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is me with a logistical nightmare that is this traveling with a wedding cake. So I wish I could spend more time in San Francisco, but it'll be a quick trip. Okay, so you made it to the right city. Good first step. Mm -hmm. So let's get into talking about your book. Um, You referenced, and we were kind of talking about this backstage too, about just cooking and baking during the pandemic, which is sort of like where your last book kind of left off or when you started writing this book. Mm -hmm. We all felt the cooking, baking burnout. Lest we forget that everybody was a sourdough bread pro (laughs) in April of 2020. I was just curious if that shaped the thinking of this book because the vibe is definitely really different than the first one. It did. It definitely did. I think like everyone else, I also had that burnout in the kitchen and I started promoting Dessert Person. It was fall 2020, and so I was, you know, all my events were virtual, so I was doing a lot of cooking and baking demos for the book. And I didn't feel like doing all the prep. I didn't feel like going grocery shopping for everything. I didn't feel like making swaps. So it's like when you do a baking demo, you can't tell everyone on Zoom to wait an hour for the thing to bake. So it's like you have to have it, you know, one that you baked earlier in the day. And I was just like, I'm over it. I don't feel like doing all of this work. And so I picked the really simple recipes in a dessert person, but there aren't that many of them. There's some really complicated... I was like, I wasn't making a croquembouche for every baking demo. So I thought to myself, for the next book, there, I'm going to keep everything on like the, the simpler end of the spectrum. And so that's what I did, because it's like, if I don't feel like making all of this stuff, I don't think anyone else is going to want to make it either at this point right. in, in the pandemic. Because let's teleport back in time when we were all Cloroxing our groceries. <laughs> right. And let, let alone washing one more dish was a chore, a real right. chore. Right. I also kind of envisioned a time when there was more of an opening, you know, at, you know when people were doing things in person again and, and being social. And I wanted the recipes in the book to feel like things that people could share. So the, the mm-hmm. I think Dessert Person is really about kind of my singular perspective as a baker. And it's to me, it's a book that's about one's own experience in the kitchen. Like a baker's journey. A baker's journey, right. And I think this book, I think What's for Dessert is... In, is very different in that I think it's a lot more about actually spending less time in the kitchen and more time kind of socializing and, and enjoying and sharing the desserts because they're, they're, I think, very celebratory and very festive and kind oh, of fun. Totally. It feels really warm. It's like vibey, as I mentioned, and it feels a little bit more retro, too. Yes. Yeah, I did. So, you know, when I was writing Dessert Person, like, my normal sources of inspiration are going to farmer's markets and traveling and going out to restaurants. And so these were, I was kind of cut off from these sources of inspiration. So I looked to texts. I was reading like a lot of old cookbooks, community cookbooks, cookbooks by some of my favorite pastry chefs from like, you know, previous decades. And so I was really kind of inspired by the sort of mid-century feel of a lot of the recipes. And so that was a really big, um, I just wanted to have fun with it and have them be kind of whimsical and have some nostalgia to the recipes too. And I learned a lot from, from Dessert Person and from YouTube and from just 
write, you know, being a recipe developer about the kinds of recipes that people respond to. I think having that nostalgia factor is really, it just kind of hooks people in. Totally. And you bring back desserts like floating islands, <laughs> which I don't know if anyone knows what a floating <laughs> island is. I had only had one. They have one on the menu at the Progress, uh, which is really good. But other than that, I was like, where on earth? Right. And I just imagined you, like, deep in the pandemic, just going down rabbit holes <laughs> of, like, research. Um, so, yeah, I was just kind of wondering if you could speak to sort of, like, if there were rabbit holes and where did you go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of them, I did pull a lot of inspiration from my, this kind of various parts of my baking education and career. So, like, I went to culinary school in France, where Floating Island is not that uncommon. Okay. It's a much more common <laughs> dessert than it is here. For anyone that doesn't know, Floating Island is a dish, it's not... The description's not going to be a huge selling point. It's better than it sounds. It's a cool dessert. <laughs> it's good. I'm like, it's kind of sweet. It's a dish of poached meringue. So usually when you make meringue, people are used to them being baked and kind of like crispy and marshmallowy. So these are poached in milk, and then they're set on a bed, like a pool of creme anglaise, a like vanilla custard sauce. Um, again, like not doesn't sound super it's cool. appealing, but it's good. It's a very kind of like classic French thing. So... I was like, I love that dessert. And I thought, you know, I really wanted there to be a place for every different kind of dessert in this book. And that, to me, it was really fitting because everything for that dessert is made on the stovetop. And I wanted to do a whole chapter of stovetop desserts for people that didn't have access to an oven or were like working in a small kitchen or even, you know, college students in a dorm room. So like, it's perfect, you know, so it, it kind of, it just checked a lot of different boxes and it's, it's a really fun, like super retro Dessert. And it feels like a really cool, elegant, sort of like fancy dessert that you can just do on the stovetop. Yeah, I think it feels simultaneously fancy, but also kind of home style, mm-hmm. um, which I really like that contrast. Um, and it feels a little paradoxical, but I think <clears throat> a lot of the recipes do that in the book. So things like pudding, but you dress them up in like a fancy coupe glass. I have a, a recipe for chocolate coupes in the book. So, you know, I wanted, like, this is a book about home baking and home desserts. Right. So that was important, but I thought if there was a way to kind of make them feel a little bit, like, a, a little bit, not formal, but kind of fancy in a like way. Like a treat to yourself. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's some, like, a lot of, like, little flourishes on the recipes that I think give them that, that sort of extra special feel where you could make it on a weeknight, but you could also serve it at, like, a celebration or a dinner party or that kind of thing, and it would be impressive. That makes sense. Um, I so we were also we had a long catch up backstage <laughs> um, because we hadn't talked to each other like during the pandemic just because you know moved across the country blah blah blah. Um, you know you got me into baking and helped instill confidence in me as a baker, and we were talking about just the power of YouTube in instilling confidence in people. <laughs> Claire can fix your dishwasher um, if you need yeah. to. <laughs> I get, I have a very high degree of confidence in my own ability to fix things, and most, a lot of that comes from YouTube, but it is, I think the point of that is it's an, it's an incredible teaching tool. And so, like, as, as careful as I am a, as a recipe writer, as um, you know, many lengths as I go to, to to put all of the detail that I can in a recipe and to sort of, you know, give you all the all the information, all the warning signs and, and all that. There's just things that you can't communicate on the written page that you can communicate in a video because you have 
you know, all the visuals. So that's why I love YouTube as both a user and a creator on the platform. It's just the, the best teaching tool, and that's why I'm still doing it, because it's just, there's, there's really no better format, I think. And it feels like the two have really complemented well, like doing the cookbook, because right now, just the, there's so many different options in how you can create content, mm -hmm. TikTok, just, you know, the internet, in general. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't do TikTok. <laughs> what's the internet? <laughs> um, what's Google? <laughs> but it seems like you've utilized both to sort of like educate people and instill confidence in getting people to bake and make desserts. You know, YouTube was in a really interesting way because I started it at, very soon after Dessert Person came out and it was a way to like don't tell people about the book and, and to demo recipes. Um, and it was really interesting because it actually did, I think, shape a lot of the way that I approached this book, is having that format. Because I would think to myself as I was developing the recipes in the book, like, how is this going to look on camera? What would I... I would kind of, like, actually visualize myself making it for an episode and think, you know, what, what am I going to highlight? And I think having that in my mind made me more attuned to the recipe process in a lot of ways. And, like, what am I going to call out? And what do I want people to pay attention to? And... What are the kind of visual cues that I, you know, would, would talk about on camera? So I think it, it had this, like, positive feedback loop in a lot of ways mm -hmm. for the recipes in the book. It just sort of made me look at them in a, in a different way. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think that that was really positive. That makes sense to me to have that, like, positive feedback because I assume, having worked with you at BA testing recipes, that, you know, at a place like Bon Appetit, you have a constant feedback loop. Maybe like too many cooks in the kitchen <laughs> yeah. sometimes. There's always like a minimum of at least two other food editors who are giving you feedback like as soon as something is off the stove, out of the oven. Mm -hmm. When you were writing this cookbook, obviously, you know, it's a pandemic, you're isolating, you don't have that sounding board. Who, aside from Harris, <laughs> your husband, <laughs> but how do you... How did you go from like having that constant feedback to just sort of like a, trusting your gut, or like what would you use as a gut check for these recipes? Yeah, it's not. I didn't really have a replacement for that like, in-person feedback that we had. I had for so many years working in a test kitchen, where you're super collaborative and you're tasting each other's food and giving sort of thoughts and literally you know. a table being set where you're like <laughs> right. presenting a potential recipe. I mean, you'd be like formally, it would be formally tasted, but you would also just be tasting amongst other and editors like in the kitchen, right? Like, hey, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. uh, what does this need? Or I'm having, a, you know, I'm, I'm sort of troubleshooting this part or that kind of thing, and that can be so productive. Like you said, sometimes there's just like too many people giving their opinion, and that's not helpful to, to a point, but I was very isolated while writing this book, and it was, it was really hard. I mean, I, I wish that I had had more kind of external feedback, because I think one thing that I experienced a lot was, like, I just kind of lost perspective, and once you make a recipe five times, you don't really like it that much anymore, you know? Sure, of course. It's like, I, I actually kind of, like, hate this recipe, and I'm <laughs> sick of it. Um, so I wish that I had had more of that feedback, and of course Harris was that. And but I, I have I became really close with my neighbors, um, who tasted everything. They were just very they were very positive about everything, which is not that helpful. They weren't going to be like we hated this, you know. But um, the, maybe the constructive feedback 
is not as present as like it would yes. be in the test kitchen. Right. You right. know what? Their feedback was what they finished first. Mm. It would be like if that, if they had a clear winner, that was like very helpful feedback or something like that. Um, but it wasn't like they were, you know, helping me with parts of the recipe process. They were just saying, right. you know, what they liked and what, the, what their favorite was. So I really missed that collaborative aspect of the process um, f- for this book. And it's interesting now that the book is out because I'm seeing the recipes being made and that is giving me like in a very delayed way, the perspective that I was missing when I was creating the recipes, because sometimes I'm seeing people respond super positively to a recipe that I was just kind of lukewarm about because I just didn't, I just couldn't kind of care about it at at a certain point, you know? So it's actually really heartening and gratifying to see people being like, oh, I love this recipe. And I was like, oh yeah, that is good. Mm -hmm. I just didn't really... Is there like a specific recipe that you are thinking about right now? Let me, there was, because some of the cookie recipes, I guess, there was, what was the... um, Because again, you're eating them for like the millionth time. Yeah, it's like, and when it's all you're eating, because like I was like, that was all I was eating was recipe tests for a very long time. That and just like frozen up dumplings from H Mart, you know, (laughs) Um, like basically lived off of that for an entire year. It's it's just very, you you kind of get fatigue around the thing that you're tasting. Mm -hmm. And so... um, there's like a very simple shortbread cookie in, in the book that when I tasted it, I was like, this is really, I think it's really good, but you just kind of don't know at a certain point. Right. Um, so actually my neighbors, they recently tasted that cookie and they were like, we like, we love this cookie. And I was like, oh, it was just, it wasn't an example of something that I didn't love, but that other people loved, but that something that I thought was good, but I needed to hear that other people liked it too, in a sense. Right. Um, and that's just a great, exciting thing about having a book come out into the world because for the year and a half that I was writing it, or longer, really the two years I was writing it, only like a handful of people see it and you're kind of the only one that's tasting it. And so it's just when it comes out into the world and you see people making the recipes, it, it's just very exciting and also kind of nerve wracking. I'm like, please turn out, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I hope that person's cake rises. But, but the book, the recipe has gone through a very rigorous recipe testing process. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I test all the recipes and I try to do everything I can to address all the major variables when it comes to a recipe. Actually, so we were talking, I was talking about Reddit right. backstage. <laughs> I did, I did recently did a Reddit, like AMA, Ask Me Anything, which I could do because it was only audio. I was literally like on my couch in my sweatpants. And someone asked the question, like, are your recipes tested? Uh, because she had like read reviews on online of people had like, had, this is for a dessert person, had some like recipes that didn't turn out or something. And so I just kind of gave an explanation about why it's just not feasible for a recipe developer to test a recipe so that it turns out 100% of the time for everyone. Under every single scenario. Like elevation differences. And also she was from Sweden. And I was like, I don't know what you're using in Sweden. It's like your (laughs) ingredients. Like that feels like also a really big variable. Um, So yeah, like your, the brands of ingredients you're using, the bakeware is a huge one that the oven that you're baking in. Which you talk about in the new book too. Just sort of bakeware. That was like a big revelation of, of working on this book. It's like, oh, bakeware is so important. And someone else asked me during the Reddit thing, like, is bakeware important? I was like, it's actually very important. And I think they were like hoping that that wasn't the answer. Um, I was like, unfortunately, it's extremely important. They're slowly tucking away the aluminum to right, foil right, right. Well, dish. the person had one pan. And I was like, oh. you're, and it was non-stick. And I was like, that's not really great. But um, 
I tried to be like, just over time, add to your collection. Like, you know, let her down easy, basically. Um, <laughs> but I was like, yeah, you need different pans to like bake different things. Um, but, but so <laughs> the point was, it's not feasible. I, I can never guarantee that a recipe is going to turn out 100% of the time for everyone. It's just not, there is no, you know, as much as I try to be scientific in the testing, I can't, I don't have the like resources or time to only ever change one variable at a time. And otherwise I test something 150 times, you know, I just, it's, it's, it's wasteful and it's, it's not practical. So yes, I do try to test them, but inevitably something isn't going to turn out. And I try to sort of manage expectations around that and explain if that happens, like try, try not to give up, try not to be, um, to sort of give up in frustration, like try it again. I'm always, I love talking to people about like what could have gone wrong and, and, and try to troubleshoot. And, and I try to give people their own tools to troubleshoot in the book as well. But yeah, inevitably, it's not going to always work. You're listening to food writer, chef, and YouTube presenter, Claire Saffitz, whose new cookbook is What's for Dessert? She's joining Conversation by Eleanor Park on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. There are parts to every single recipe where, Claire, you almost like preemptively answer people's questions because as you will all see in the book, it's, there's a section that's like, can I dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I'm getting, I get lots of questions from people about like, can I substitute this ingredient for, for this, or can I double it, or can I make it ahead of time? And the point is that no one is making a recipe in a vacuum. Like, there's always a context or a circumstance, and so I try to, in that section, it's, it's basically like FAQ for each <laughs> recipe. Um, and so I try to anticipate the kinds of things that people might have questions about in each recipe and then answer them, um, because... People are baking for an occasion, for under like time constraints. In Sweden. In Sweden, <laughs> right. Um, so that was my section where I'm like, because those are the questions I hear all the time from people. And so I try to just kind of get out ahead of it and say, like, here are, here are the things you might be wondering and, and here's the, the answers to them. It feels like just an ex, I can't even imagine the foresight that goes into, did that come from just like questions that you had received in the past or just maybe like, how do you even do the research for like preemptively knowing what people will ask? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's like the same, the same kinds of questions about substitutions or kind of practical questions. Like, can I bake this in a different pan? That's a, a really common one. So these were things that I had fielded from people all the time. It's funny. Sometimes every once in a while I'll check my DMs. Like I don't make a habit of that because it, it can be it was sure the time. Like a wild, wild west out there. <laughs> right. yeah. but sometimes on more than one occasion, I've read a message from someone that said something like, I'm in the grocery store right now. I have a question. <laughs> I have, can I buy like this brand of chocolate? Like I can't find this ingredient. And it's like, you think of it, I'm like live, like answering my DMs. I love that your DMs are like the phone of friend emergency yes, hotline. Yes. Like Claire, I'm in aisle 10. Right, right, right. It's someone being like, 
I need the answer to this question in the next four and a half seconds. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't just ask Google, but sure. I mean, that you bet Google will definitely have an answer, me not so much, in real time. Um, but those are the kinds of things where it's like, I'm, I get questions often about right. these types of, um, there's sort of like categories of questions. Um, and so, you know, it's not exhaustive. I'm not going to answer every potential question about every recipe, but I try to cover the, I try to hit the, the major ones. Um, I can only imagine what your DMs look like. Um, kind of seems maybe like a scary place. But I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about just sort of like eating, you know, trying out a recipe a million times. And what I really loved about this book is that there are recipes that like most people have had a million times, like blondies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a dish that exists in the world every which way, but you have managed to sort of rethink it with your own and inject your own personality. And that seems pretty challenging. As someone who also, like, it just makes me think of, like, working at Bon Appetit and having to rethink Thanksgiving every single year. <laughs> right, right. Like, how do you rethink a blondie? That's funny. I was, think, I was saying this to a friend recently about... That is like the the food media cycle, like the, the the sort of editorial cycle, and how I actually still get excited. I, I was like the only person in the magazine who got excited about Thanksgiving every year because I just love that holiday. But at a certain point, it's like, didn't we tell people last year that we were giving them the best mashed potato <laughs> recipe? So like, I think like we don't have another like we don't have a new best recipe. Right. We did that already. Um, but that is a kind of an issue that I confronted with this book because I do focus so much on simplicity. At a certain point, when you, when you get simpler and simpler and simpler, you're going to find five recipes just like it. And so right. one of the, you know, when I was talking to my editor at the very beginning of writing this book, I said to her, I was like, this is going to be so easy, this book. Like, I'm going to write it. It's going to be a piece of cake. Everything's <laughs> going to be so simple. But it was actually much harder. It's harder to develop a simple recipe because... Well, for a couple of reasons. One, it's like there's nowhere to... You can't hide when a simple recipe. Like, when you really strip something down and streamline it, every ingredient, like, has a function. And you change something, you change one thing, and you change... Everything is different. And so there is no... There is nowhere to kind of hide, in, in a sense. Um, and then the other thing that's really challenging about it, that was challenging for me personally, was this idea of... Why does this? Why do I need to give a recipe for this if it's so straightforward? Yeah, right. Like right. blonde, it's like you said. So uh, it was a big part of thinking through the recipe and trying to come up with a way to still feel like I was delivering something not new because there's nothing's really new right. ever, mm-hmm. in, especially in cooking and baking. But that felt like there was something clever about it, or a reason for someone to make it, or like I was I was creating value in this recipe. So it just meant that I made things like a lot of different times and really had to, I always feel like I had to spend a certain amount of time with a recipe to, to kind of understand it and think like, what is, what is it about this recipe that is making it the thing that I like or that I'm responding to and how can I kind of highlight that and, um, or create like a new texture or flavor combination or that kind of thing, but still staying in this realm of things that are really familiar because... Like, that's what I want to eat. I don't really feel like... And I never reinvent the wheel. I'm not creating something that no one's seen before. I just want it to be, like, a, a version of that that's super delicious, makeable, and feels, like, a little bit sort of special or different or new or fresh or that kind of thing. And that feels really challenging, too, because 
I would imagine, and maybe I'm just like projecting here, but like when I cook at home, I know that there's like, you know, I can get stuck in a rut in terms of, there are like five things that I always love putting in like the same five things that I put in my salads, pastas, Mm -hmm. lunch, dinner. Like how do you get out of that rut where like, you know, you between the challenge of balancing between like your go-to ingredients and like making it new or fresh. Sorry, yeah. I know that we said that we don't like the word new, but... <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I used it before, but it's like, it's, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm not creating something that hasn't existed before, right? but I want, I always want there to feel like there's a reason for someone to make it and that there is, like, like the argument, it's it, its own argument, you know, in a sense. Um, but I, I do try to sort of, like approach the recipe from a particular perspective. So whether it's a flavor combination or a texture or I want to recall a taste memory that I have, like there's usually a a concrete starting point that I'm trying to kind of like hit and create this. um, I have an idea of what I want it to be in my head and I'm trying to create that. So, I mean, I do have ingredients that I like love to use over and over again. And, um, but with this book, I, actually there's so much less of a focus on seasonality because I, like, I love fruit desserts. I'm always, I love cooking seasonally and baking seasonally, but I try to, in this book, provide a lot more kind of evergreen recipes that don't mm. use, that don't focus so much on hyper-seasonal fruits or fruits you might have to go find at the farmer's market. So, you know, the vast majority of them you can get all of the ingredients that you need at any major grocery store. Which I was happy to read because, Claire, you know my love for sour cherries and, uh-huh. your, and your sour <laughs> cherry pie specifically. Mm-hmm. Someone can find me after this talk if I am wrong about this, but I cannot find sour cherries out in California. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh confirmed that no, okay. you cannot. I wasn't sure if that was a, yes, you can, or you, no, right. you can't. <laughs> it, it does feel very Midwest and North. I mean, I grew up in St. Louis, and we had a cherry, sour cherry tree in our front yard. So it's like that felt... Humble brag. Right, 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 <laughs> totally, totally. We used to hang outside my sister's bedroom window from the second floor and pick them. My mom would be like, oh my, like, please don't fall out of the window. And my mom would make pies with them. So that's something I grew up with. But I am aware of how not only hyper-seasonal they are, because there's only like a two-week span where you can get them even in the Northeast. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can source them frozen, but like there's a recipe for a cherries jubilee in the mm-hmm. book that just uses canned, it's like just, or jarred, you know, sour cherries. So I try to really, um, wherever I can, if the recipe calls for a fresh fruit, then there's a frozen option as well. So there's only a couple things in the book where I just, it, it's, there's such a beloved ingredient that I can't not include it. So like sour cherry is one and quince is one. I'm like, no one's going to make the quince recipe. That's fine. I put it, I, <laughs> we get quince out here though. You do so, get quince. Yes. Yeah, but no one's going to, it's a quince and pineapple jam tart. No one's going to make it. I love it. It's, I don't care. It's fine. It looks pretty. That's like a recipe for you. Like, yes. Yes. That was a recipe for me. I generally feel like 98% of the recipes in the book are to provide for other people for like, you know, all the dessert people, but some of them are like that one's just for me. But that's important too. To, that feels like, a, like a pun not intended, a slice of you like in the book, which is great. Yeah, I do try to keep that balance of like, I, I do, and, and that part, it kind of speaks to the flexibility that I wanted to build into the book because even though I try to make, I, I try to focus on simplicity and create streamlined recipes, it doesn't mean that there aren't recipes that are a little bit, still more complicated or that have a few extra steps or a few, you know, combine a couple of components or require a few different bowls. So the framework that I created for the book 
was about this kind of idea of streamlining and um, like stripping a recipe down to kind of its common denominators and getting rid of superfluous steps or ingredients or equipment. But that doesn't mean that there still can't be like there's a you know there's some deep fried recipes, there's some slab pies, like things that are inherently a few have a few more steps right. and components. And I wanted there to be that. I still wanted those to be in the book because as much as I'm talking about the idea of like simple stuff and. I don't feel like baking stuff that's complicated. I still, I still actually do like to. I mean, baking still involves steps. Right, right, right. right, exactly. I did, I did an event two weeks ago in my hometown in St. Louis, and a good friend of mine who's like a very well-known comedian did it with me, and she's not a very good baker, and she was like, "Now let me ask you, do you have to measure?" And I was like, I was like, I was like, yes, like you have, you have to measure. Like I'm, I'm sorry. I yes, you have to, you have to measure your ingredients. It's like the commenters that we get on NYT cooking, where they're like, <laughs> well, which is a wild place. If you, oh. If you ever want to replace your social media, I highly recommend reading the comments on oh. NYT cooking. But um, it is. It's um, something. It yeah. It's like why didn't this recipe work? I didn't use spoons or a measuring cup. <laughs> right, right. I didn't have butter, so I used cream cheese and, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. I used aquafaba chickpea water foam <laughs> instead of milk. Right. And, and it was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, This right. recipe does not work. It simply just does not work. Right. Yes, yes. There's always that. <laughs> um, okay, so I have to ask you a random question. Why... And this comes specifically because you have a beautiful recipe for um, a morning glory cake, uh-huh. right? Why do you not like muffins? Why are you coming <laughs> for muffins, Claire? <laughs> okay. It's just about there being truth in advertising. I just want things to present as what they are. And a muffin is just cake without frosting. In most cases, I don't mean, and my mom actually got mad at me about this because she was like, I make muffins and you like them. And I was like, yes, mom, like your muffins are muffins and I like them. But generally, like what is, what you see labeled muffins these days are cake, it's a cupcake with no frosting. It's very like sugary. I just had this conversation. I've had this conversation with multiple people recently. I thought that I was very Um, (laughs) rich. But I I did read that top note. I was like, wow, Clara's really coming for muffins. I know. I mean, you. I know. I'm generally not someone that like courts controversy, but I also won't shy away from an opinion. Um, So I don't actually. There's something I don't have an inherent like bias against them. I just think that they have become something that I don't want them to be. Right. So when I see a muffin, when I see someone has like bought a muffin, I'm just like, mm, like I'm not. Yeah. That's not for me. But that, but the story behind that cake was like I ate a friend. I was like on Martha's Vineyard visiting a friend, and she went out and bought this Morning Glory muffin. And to me, it's supposed to be like wholesome, which means like I know I'm not gonna like it. Right. Um, like '90s I, brand muffin kind right. of. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yes, exactly. So, but I tasted it. I was like, this is delicious. So I kind of took the idea of this like super packed kind of um, like fluffy muffin and I, I turned it into something. I mean, now, now it's a loaf cake. It's, it kind of splits the difference between a morning glory muffin and carrot cake because morning glory has carrot in it. So it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's like this, I can get behind this. Love a carrot cake. So, okay, so we won't need to talk about like the muffin tops Seinfeld <laughs> episode. It seems like it's just uh-huh. a advertisement thing. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's about truth and advertising. Right, the cultural construct of a muffin is yes. false. Also, okay. they're like huge, they're like so big. They're, I, it's, nah, they're just... We'll, we'll talk about it more backstage. I just don't know why you would choose that over like a croissant or like something else in the that is pastry true. case. You right. know. Um, 
so kind of going all over the place, but it, I was thinking about, you know, especially having come out of Thanksgiving planning and like a big just Thanksgiving push that we've done, just like every food magazine has done across the board. Do you ever miss the sort of like editorial calendar or like just the parameters of being able to work with like, I don't want to say confinement, or did it just feel like really freeing when you were able to write these books? I, it feels kind of like it would be both like a challenge and kind of like an exhilarating opportunity. Yeah, I think it was both. I really do. I think I was very happy to not have the the constraints of developing recipes for a food magazine because you know what it was though? It was more that I was very happy that I did not have to develop a recipe for a photo. That right. to me was the most kind of like confining part of the process was that in a magazine, like the photos sell the magazines. And so there was such an emphasis on how something was going to look. And so it would be like, oh, why don't you just add some like black sesame on it to like make it look cool. Make I was it like, pop. Right. And I was like, but I don't want to put black sesame on it. Like doesn't, <laughs> the, the recipe doesn't need that. You right. know, the recipe kind of tells you like what it wants to be. And I'm not going to add something just because it looks good. So I became really, um, firm in my approach that like I'm not going to add something just for the sake of making it look right. good. And so for this book, the result is kind of like the recipes are a little bit they're a little bit homely sometimes. <laughs> like I almost went like really far in the other direction of like I was, I was so like adamant about like the recipe is just gonna look how it looks. So like things are brown. So that just means that when I talked to my the, the creative team for creating for you know illustrating the book and making the photos, I was like, guys, color like cool napkins like we like interesting. Can't, I was like, let the prop styling is gorgeous. <laughs> yes, incredible prop styling. That was Nicole Louie, who's just like the most creative, incredible prop stylist. So um, I did feel like that, you know let's like jazz it up a little bit. But it, but I do think it's it's important for me as a recipe developer to to present recipes that way, that it's not just about... I mean, if they still look good, I think there's, they're still really appealing, but I'm not going to tell you to do something just because I want the photo to look good. Um, and, but I do give also in, in the book um, little steps called optional upgrades, which are sprinkled throughout, and it is basically, I say, like, here is a point at the recipe where you could add an optional flourish mm. that, you know, it could kind of, like, jazz it up or make it look a little bit more appealing, but you don't have to do it. So, so I do sort of give people that option as well. Um, so that feels like an interesting journey because you started at BA like in 2013 when we like only had magazines sort mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. so Instagram was like kind of whispering in the background. Uh-huh. I joined Instagram in August 2013. <laughs> <laughs> and then just progressing to like YouTube, which you've talked about, but it has just must, it just seems like it has shaped sort of like the way that you develop a recipe over the last almost 10 years now has completely changed from like it seems like you've been like riding the wave of almost of how people are learning to cook and bake like over the last 10 years i do feel like i have been a part of that mm-hmm. like dramatic shift and that transition but i think that being a part of that has also made me in so many ways stick, like, like hold more tightly to the kind of core of what I do, which is like providing recipes that work and that are going to be delicious and satisfying to people. And so the idea of like 
trying to engineer a viral, viral, viral recipe. That was a hard word. It's like rural juror. <laughs> Throw the rock. Um, a viral recipe was just like, I can't... Like, it, it made me in so many ways because of how quickly, like, social media changes and, right. like, the, the sort of speed and, and frequency of, like, hacks and trends and, you know, this the butterboards or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm going to kind of go in the opposite direction. Like, I just can't... I'm not, I'm a very like late adopter of things. You know, I like watch a show five years after it comes out and like talk, start talking about it to everyone who's like already seen it. Like I just, I just kind of can't, although I'm like participating on these platforms, I just, it's just kind of not what I do. And so I just, I'm like, I, I go in the opposite direction. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is food writer, chef, and YouTube presenter, Claire Saffitz, whose new cookbook is What's for Dessert? She's joined in conversation by Eleanor Park. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. I have to ask because I tested some of um, your savory recipes from Dessert Person and have had the pleasure of testing a lot of your savory recipes um, at Bon Appetit. Um, but can you foresee like a savory cookbook or maybe like a more savory focused cookbook in the future? Definitely. I think that's probably the next thing. I'm definitely going to take like a a nice long break from the book process because not even like a break, but just I'm going to enjoy not being on a schedule for it. I think for a little bit, I think I'm always, I'm always writing ideas down and thinking about recipes and, you know, having kind of ideas coalesce and, and, and thinking about something, a larger kind of project. Um, and I definitely think it includes savory because that is like, that's how I started as more of a generalist. And as far as cooking, um, I did like cuisine in culinary school with a little bit of pastry. Um, and I think most people obviously know me as a baker and that's where my, like the, the, the really core of my passion is. But I love savory cooking and it's been such a pleasure to rediscover that since I finished the book and have mm. been able to like actually cook for myself and cook for Harris and, um, you know, family and friends. So it's really, it's it's great to rediscover that and realize like it doesn't, it hasn't gone away that, that sort of, um, that love of, of just sort of savory cooking. And, um, I feel like cooking and baking complement each other in so many ways. And there's so much overlap, but it is just really nice to like, just be at home and put together a meal that I'm not like, I'm not writing down the ingredient quantities and thinking about creating a product. Yeah. I can kind of just be super intuitive about it. And so that's, that's been so great. And, um, it's nice to have like ideas again about recipes and dishes and that and that kind of thing. It must feel like the equivalent of being a restaurant critic who can just go to like In and Out and right. eat a cheeseburger <laughs> right. and like just flipping off that part of your brain that's yeah. like breaking each breaking down each ingredient, each mm-hmm. bite, each flavor profile. Yeah, it's very. It feels like an an intuitive way of cooking and eating. Whereas when you're recipe testing, or if you're a restaurant critic, is a great example. Like you're not listening to your own cues about 
what you're eating because it's a more of like an intellectual process. So it's nice to step away from that a little bit and just be like, what do I feel like eating tonight? Because I can, I can make that. So it sounds like you still are able to experience pleasure and joy when you are like cooking and baking. Yeah, it's, it's such an encouraging thing to experience because when I was first, it was in my early to mid 20s and I was thinking about pursuing like culinary arts and cooking in some way. And I had that, that was a question for me and a concern and an anxiety. It's like, if I do this as a career, is it gonna make me love it less when you do it for work? And one thing that my first boss at BA told me was, if it's, if it's not work, they're not gonna pay you. So it was like, that stuck with me. You know, it's like, it's still work. Um, but it's so nice that at the end of the day, I could still spend my whole day recipe developing. And then when I'm making dinner, it still feels, I still get like lots of enjoyment and pleasure out of it. Sometimes I feel like even after a long day of recipe testing, it's like the home cooked meals, like the most simple salad is mind blowingly delicious. Yeah. It's really, um, I feel like what I've been doing a lot lately is focusing on this idea of deliciousness and like really exploring it on a super kind of micro level about like just, and it helps to have Harris who's like, we're together in this kind Mm -hmm. of, um, like we're, it's a huge interest for both of us. Um, so he's a guy who gives honest feedback. Very honest. Very <laughs> honest. He's like, one of his own phrases about himself is he's like, I'm never wrong about food, <laughs> which is annoying, but true. And it's annoying that it's true. Actually. It feels kind of like the antithesis of Jeffrey and Ina, where Jeffrey is like always like very agreeable. Right, right. Just like so happy to eat whatever. Harris would be like, mm. Yeah. Or Harris will be like, oh, this is really good. I'll be like, but you almost burned the garlic, didn't you? And I'm like, yes. It's so annoying that you like can point that out and know that. Because um, he's it back, maybe. <laughs> right. I'm like, just only love the things that I make you, you know. Um, but it's true. It's like we. It's this endlessly fascinating mm. pursuit, and I feel very lucky that the thing that I get to do as a career is also a means of like living really well. It's like the more that I get to learn about this, the more like our lives get better because we just, it, it's a way of like experiencing like pleasure on a daily basis. And, and um, it really enriches your life to be able to cook good food for yourself and for your family. So one last question I had for you is, do you have any last minute baking, general baking advice as we head into sort of like the... Super Bowl moment of baking, <laughs> holidays around the corner. Yes. What is sort of like the take-home message for tonight? Yes. So this was sort of more relevant for um, Thanksgiving, which has just passed, but I think it carries into the holidays also. Um, I say this about pies. Like pies are really complicated, and they're very technical, and I think it's the kind of thing where if you're only making pies once a year, you're just kind of setting yourself up for like just like incredible frustration and sort of like existential crisis because there's just so much technique goes into it. I put the kibosh on Greg, my husband, who was like, I last minute wanted to make a pie. And I was like, no, (laughs) there is no last minute pie. There's no such thing as a last minute pie. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like if you didn't let that pastry chill for two hours, then like, sorry. So my, so my sort of advice actually about that is like, stick to a crumb crust, like keep it, like Mm. set yourself up for success rather than failure. And so like recognize your limitations. I do think that like changing your expectations is a little bit or modifying your expectations is really helpful. Um, Can I just also, I just want to tell you, this is totally 
no, not related to that. I want to brag about my Thanksgiving for a second. I want to hear, I want to hear okay. what you had for Thanksgiving. Okay. Thanksgiving was the most low-key Thanksgiving I've ever had. I didn't start cooking until 1 p.m. on Thursday. Amazing. And that's when I put the pie in the oven. And at one point, the pie and the turkey were in together, and I was like, whatever, who cares? Like, this is happening. You guys hang out. But the turkey, guess what I did to the turkey? I put salt on it, and I put it in the oven. And it was Spatch the best turkey. No, nope, whole? nope, I didn't even, nope. Took it out of the thing, dried it off, put salt on it, put it in the oven. I mean, mostly Harris just was very careful not to overcook it. And it was a small turkey. Very important. So important. Only make small turkeys. No, don't make 20 pound turkeys. T- terrible idea. How many pounds? It's like eight pounds. Okay, perfect. It was like a huge chicken, kind basically. Of a yes. Yeah. Make two eight pound turkeys if, if you can. Um, but it was just not overcooked. It was like a good quality turkey. I just really feel like this year I discovered actually doing simple Thanksgiving, and I'm never looking back. My, mo- my favorite anecdote of our Thanksgiving is that my mom and I both had Thanksgiving dinner in our pajamas. Amazing. I was like, this is, uh, yeah. It was- Side dishes? <sighs> so some Brussels sprouts, we make this glazed shallot dish every year that's so good, mm. mashed potatoes. I was like, how about a salad? Everyone was like, no, we don't. <laughs> I was like, great, cut, cut. That's all you need. Yeah. It was the best Thanksgiving I've ever had. So maybe it's just sort of similar strategy going into December. Yes. Like, yes. Reel it in. Yeah. And then the only other very practical piece of advice is just like use your freezer and freeze cookie dough. Yes. And that's really it. Plan ahead. Yes. Okay. Well, I think <laughs> that we're going to answer some questions now from the audience. Hi, um, I'm a big fan. Um, you've got me through the pandemic and also my pregnancy. And I guess my question is relevant to, to that. Um, how do you have any advice for how to um, integrate children into the, the kitchen and baking? Oh, yes, Claire. No, that Eleanor, is a fantastic I'm, question. I'm also a new mom. Yeah, can, I would love to kick that question over to Eleanor because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I say this a lot about my recipes. I'm like, oh, this would be great to do with kids, but I don't know if that's <laughs> right. I mean, I bake with my nephew. Sometimes he's five. He doesn't have a great attention span. Old, so I'm like not equipped to answer this question. <laughs> are you cooking with Hugh? We I mean, are, not with, yeah. but like in, no, in the midst of. We are cooking because my, my husband is also a chef. Um, so we can't not cook, but it's definitely, it is like what you were saying, planning ahead. So it's a lot of strategic, like I was actually baking your... Um, all the the cover beauty from your first book, uh-huh. the olive oil cake with blood oranges, and I think I was four months postpartum, and I was like, I've baked this cake a million times because you had done a version at Bon Appetit. I was like, I can nail this cake in an hour. Took me all day because <laughs> I started at 10 a.m. and then just things move differently. So yeah. now when I bake or cook, it's very strategic. Like I will. Um, Supreme or like slice of blood oranges ahead of time. I will, mm-hmm. I will mise everything out beforehand. So for something like a cake, I just kind of am able to dump everything into the bowl and like shove it into the oven because I had maybe measured things out the morning beforehand. So you like super break, break it down into, into discrete yes, steps that you can do ahead. It's almost like, and I actually learned this from Bon Appetit, it would, it would be like if you knew you had to bake a cake or do something for a shoot the next day, mm-hmm. getting a baking sheet, having everything weighed out and measured out, and that way when it's go time, you can just... Right, right. Yeah. That makes sense. I think also there's a section in, in the front matter 
of the book that uh, says it's called How to Bake with Less Anxiety. And, but I think that a lot of the tools that I give apply to just like being under extreme time constraints or like having lots of other things going on um, that help. It's stuff like, I mean, it's a lot of these things like being super organized and visualizing the recipe, like pulling out your equipment ahead of time, just like doing little things. I think about recipes as like there's a seal on recipes. When you break the seal, it feels a lot easier to do. When you're just staring at a page of instructions, it feels very intimidating. But if you could just do like two things that break the seal a little bit and kind of get you into it, then it feels a lot easier, I think. And I think it goes back to like what you were saying too about just like manage your expectations, you know? So just, are you really going to make a pie dough for the first time in a year and a half? Um, <laughs> like maybe a, maybe a different kind of pie crust is better. Yeah. I do think the older I get, the more I realize the key to happiness in life is just managing your own expectations. <laughs> <laughs> it's depressing, but it, it's not depressing though. It sounds depressing, but it's not. There I promise. There is actually, like, I felt like the introduction in the book, there was a lot of like self-help advice. Yes. It, I, it's like a little bit of light therapy in the, in the beginning of the book. Right. It's, I think, well, I'll find it. We can go to the next question, but. <laughs> yeah. My question for you is about the recipe matrix that you have in the beginning of both books, which tickles the heck out of me. And I show it to everybody when they look at the book. I'm like, wait, you have to see this thing. It's amazing. Um, I love it because it's a way to explore and jump into the book that can, for me, break through that breaking the seal you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, did you develop, are you the inventor of the recipe matrix? Or maybe you can tell me what inspired it. Did you invent the matrix? Okay. I think I am the inventor of, of the recipe. I'm not the inventor of the matrix, but I'm the inventor of the, the recipe matrix. <laughs> right. Right. Um, actually, the idea from it came from, you know, that is from the approval matrix in New York oh. Magazine, which is not the same thing at all. But I was just really interested in this idea of physically charting the recipes in the book. And it came out of, from what for me was, what I tried to make a really deep exploration into how people actually use cookbooks. Um, and to sort of give a practical tool to meet people where they are. So because, as I said earlier in the conversation, you're never making a recipe like in a vacuum. It's like there's always some constraint. It's like time, space, you know, equipment, ability, knowledge, all these things. And so the matrix was just a quick way for someone to decide what they could handle and what they wanted to take on because I just feel like I want the buy-in to be very clear for people. I've I've been in that position where it's like you get to paragraph three of the recipe and it's like chill overnight and you're like, God, always like (laughs) always read the recipe, always read the recipe minimum two times. Which I always tell people to do, but sometimes it's really easy to like just skip that line of like you know chill for the next twelve hours or something. So I just wanted it to be this very practical tool for people so that no one had that experience of like, oh my God, I'm supposed to serve this in three hours and I have to. You know, the, like the chocolate chip cookies, the in dessert person say to like chill for a, at least, I think it says like you could do, you know, even if a couple hours is okay, but you know, 12 hours is better. And so I just want to avoid any of those situations. So yeah, that, but I'm so glad that you like the matrix. It seems like it goes back to the common theme of the evening, at least of managing expectations. Yes, too. yes, exactly. Like right. <laughs> right. Right. Know that this recipe is going to take you. 12 hours, even though eight of them are going to be chilling or whatever. So, yeah, and one of them will be baking. So, so I'm actually just curious, um, what are some things that you practice as far as gratitude or keeping you humble? 
Yeah, I love that question. I do try to, um, I think, keep perspective and be, and practice gratitude and and feel and and be sort of very like clear with myself about um, like what my limitations are. And I just I, I think part of it is like the weird phenomenon of the internet, like you know, putting you in front of people in a way that like I'm not connected to in my daily life. So it's like I go about my life. I think also there's something about living in New York that makes people very humble. It's a very humbling place to live because... Can you share the bodega story from the other night? Of... <laughs> yeah. The other night. It was last night. It was last night. I was... Oh, God. I'm... It's not answering your question, but... Well, it's, well, it's sort of a good illustration. Um, last night, I was telling Eleanor... Because I got like very little sleep last night because I was I'm very bad at time management as it turns out I think it's gotten worse during the pandemic, and so I was trying to do like a, a recipe last night at like nearly 11 o'clock and I went to the bodega on my corner because I realized I didn't have eggs but I needed eggs and so I was wearing <laughs> flip flops with socks because I just like threw them on I was like as wearing like does. my husband's sweatshirt and I went down I hadn't like showered. And I went down to the bodega just to see if they had eggs, which they did not. And someone was in there ordering a sandwich and was like, oh, I like love your videos. And I was just like, this is, I was just like, oh my God, like, I just like, want, you know, so it's, it, it, there's a like humility in that where it's like, it's, you know, it's your, I guess what I, what I was trying to say is like, I, I sort of suffer like minor indignities like all the time living in New York. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was trying know, to No, no, it's out, funny. But. Um, but I think, I don't know, I guess some of it's natural. It's like, I feel like I'm sort of a, person that naturally practices gratitude and feels so lucky for the opportunity that I've had because I, I also recognize the privilege that I have because I think a lot of people that have my same knowledge or skill but haven't had the same opportunities to, to have the platforms that I've had. And so I just try to remember that all the time. And it helps that I have also such like a warm, supportive community of people that participate in, in you know, make the recipes and watch the YouTube videos and it, it's easy, I feel like, to, to stay that way when, when... And also don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Yeah, yeah, that, that helps too. So yeah, thank you so much. I feel like that's such a good segue to... I found the chapter of how... In the intro, how to bake with less anxiety. And these just totally feel like metaphors for real life outside of the kitchen. <laughs> visualize a process. Take baby steps before you begin. Read and make notes on the recipe. <laughs> believe in yourself and try to reframe your expectations, which I love. Right. Yes. Yeah. For lessons in life and baking. Yes. <laughs> um, Claire, thank you so much for... Thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> thank you all for coming. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was food writer, chef, and YouTube presenter, Claire Saffitz, whose new cookbook is What's for Dessert? She was joined in conversation by Eleanor Park, SEO editor for New York Times Cooking. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zor. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.